Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 737 for the 2nd of April, 2021. This week, security threats surround us. Several months ago, I signed up for a Liker account as a possible alternative to Facebook. In mid-March, Liker abruptly shut down because of a serious data breach. They say they'll be back when they've reworked their code to be more secure. Threats can come from anywhere. In short circuits, when it's time to replace a computer monitor, you might consider a television because you can get a larger screen for a lower price. But should you? If you use an application that shows the temperature of your computer's CPU, you may wonder why there is so much fluctuation and why the various cores don't all report the same temperatures. If so, I have just the information you're seeking. In spare parts, only on the website, if you're considering a Windows S mode computer, be sure you understand the limitations. And if you have one of these computers, there is a way to remove the restrictions if you find them too limiting. Buying Apple products you see on Instagram might be dangerous. Beware fakes and counterfeit devices. And 20 years ago, typefaces on websites were limited to about half a dozen faces present on all computers. Bitstream was trying to change that. Security threats surround us. Several months ago, I signed up for a Liker account. Liker is probably doomed to fail, but it does offer an approach that differs from Facebook. Then halfway through March, I received a message from Mozilla that said my Liker login credentials had been involved in a breach. Later that day, Liker sent a message that said the service would be shut down until they reworked their code to be more secure. There's no real need for concern because the credentials I used for Liker were specific to Liker. The organization that committed the breach may have gotten my email address. That's no real concern because my email address isn't exactly secret. They may also have gained access to my password, but so what? I reuse passwords only for the most trivial services, and even that is rare. My Liker password, which is T8HTAPOVGG7, with most of the letters lowercase except for the H, the P, and both Gs, was generated using random characters. When Liker signs back on, the first action returning users will need to do is change their password. Liker will no doubt force that. So I'm not concerned about having just told you my password. It's not used for any other account, and I will never use it again on any account. The Internet is a wonderful thing, but it's also a terrible thing. It connects us, but it also makes it easy for those who want to divide us to spread false information. And theft no longer has to be done in person. Someone halfway around the planet can use your computer to spread spam and malware, to collect information needed to assume your identity, and to extract money from your bank account. 
They can also attack your computer with software that encrypts all of the files and then demand $1,000 or more to unlock the files. Security is a complex topic. Large organizations have entire departments that continuously look for weak spots. Individual home users simply can't afford that kind of security. In 1999, I wrote about how to guarantee absolute computer security with a confidence level of about 99.9999%. Here are my guidelines. Disconnect the computer from any network, intranet, local area network, and internet. Remove any network interface card from the computer. Remove any serial ports or internal modems from the computer. Remove any parallel ports from the computer. Remove any USB ports from the computer. Today, we would also need to disable or remove Wi-Fi and Bluetooth adapters. Place the computer inside a windowless room at the center of an RF-shielded building. Place security cameras inside and outside the room, making certain that no camera shows what is on the monitor or what keys the user is pressing. Station guards outside the room. Allow only one user in the room with the computer at any time log arrival and departure times, and prohibit users from taking anything into or out of the room. And for extra points, to avoid break-ins through the roof or tunneling under the floor, the room should be on a middle floor. The floor, walls, ceiling, and doors should all be reinforced with quarter-inch stainless steel. Well, an arrangement like that would certainly be secure. It would also be completely unusable. The law of diminishing returns becomes a factor, too, so the best approach for most of us is to choose a few security tactics that provide substantial returns and forget about the rest. For the computer to be useful, you will need to have access to at least the local area network, the internet, disk drives, and printers. So let's consider five key actions you could take right now to safeguard your data and your identity. First, use a password manager. Password managers do more than just manage passwords. They can help you create good passwords. And some have services that let you know if your username has been involved in a data breach. Password reuse is a huge problem. Using the same email and password for more than one account is risky. If you've used your Facebook password for a bank account, you might find that your bank account has been emptied. Strong, unique passwords are essential for every significant account. But keeping track of all those passwords manually is impossible. Password managers do this for you. There are free password managers, but most of the paid services offer some useful additional capabilities, and they do it for a modest fee. Second, not to harp on a topic that I mention from time to time, backup, backup, backup. I harp on that a lot, but it's probably the single most effective way to recover from a disaster. If a virus or a crook defeats any defense systems you have in place, being able to restore files converts a disaster to an annoyance. Maybe a big annoyance, but an annoyance, not a disaster. Backup isn't magic. You won't be back to normal 10 minutes after you discover a problem, but you will be able to recover. Difficult is a lot better than impossible. Several backup methods exist. You can create an image of the entire operating system. You can backup data to cloud-based services. You can copy essential files to external hard drives or locations such as Google Drive. Consistency is the key. 
My online backup constantly copies new and changed files, but there's also a local backup system that does the same with important active files. I create an image backup of the boot drive twice a week. All the data files are backed up each week to local USB drives. That's in addition to the cloud. So that's a belt and suspenders approach. You might find it amusing, but consider this. I haven't lost a file in the nearly two decades that I've been using that system. Third, make sure you're not a zombie, or your computer is not a zombie. Some malware applications take control of computers and make them part of botnets that send spam emails and malware, either to every contact in your email program or to lists of potential victims provided by the botnet operators. You can check to see if your email or domain address has been infected with one of the more recent botnet variants, Emotet, by visiting a site that I have a link to on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just enter your email address there, and it'll tell you. Now, that is just one type of botnet, so it's important to watch for signs that your computer might be part of a botnet. Ensure that your computer's operating system and internet applications are up to date. Every operating system has flaws, and many of the updates we receive are intended to eliminate security problems. An up-to-date virus scanner will detect some botnets, but don't depend on it. The virus scanner may detect only the virus that installed the botnet, but not the botnet itself. Also, watch for system slowdowns. Botnets can generate a lot of network traffic, so watch for processes that create a lot of outbound activity. Point four is two-factor authentication. If a scammer manages to obtain the username and password you use to log into your PayPal account, two-factor authentication will stop them dead. Many services now offer this feature, especially those that deal with financial or personal data. I wrote about two-factor authentication last July. You'll find a link to that program on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And everything in that article still applies. Two-factor authentication requires you to confirm your account with more than just your username and password, those are something you know, by adding a third component, which is something you have. So a scammer might have both parts of the something you know component, your username and password, but they have no way to gain access to the authentication code. Two-factor authentication means you'll spend maybe another five seconds logging into an account, but two-factor authentication alone massively improves security. And number five, avoid using a Windows administrator account if you can. Windows offers three kinds of accounts, standard, administrator, and the administrator. The the administrator account is something like the doctor on Doctor Who. There is only one, and it is very special. The the administrator account isn't even active by default, but it is easy to set up any user account as an administrator. Best security practice means that you won't use an administrator account because these accounts can be used to install software. A secondary standard account is safer, but it's also a pain to use. If you're cautious, using an administrator account is relatively safe. If other family members use your computer, and this may apply especially for children, setting their accounts as standard users makes a lot of sense. Users with a standard account can't easily install malware. In fact, they can't really install much of anything easily. If you set your account as a standard account, it's still fairly easy to switch to an administrator account when you have to perform an administrative function. Now, as valid as that point is, 
I continue to use administrator permissions for my primary account. It's just too much trouble to do it the other way. And point six. Yeah, I know I said five. Consider six a bonus. Use security software, but don't depend on it. A lot of companies offer security software. Most of the third-party offerings degrade system performance when all of the features are enabled. I have said for years, maybe for decades, that security software should be provided by the operating system developer. At long last, the Microsoft firewall that's included with Windows 10 is adequate, and the security tools included with Windows offer good protections. I've been using the Windows defaults for several years. The third-party tools do include advanced features, but as I said, they can also significantly degrade system performance. It all comes down to usability and security. Making your computer secure may seem to get in the way, but security procedures don't need to make the computer harder to use, and they do protect your data, your money, and your identity from thieves. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, when it's time to replace your computer's monitor, you might be looking for something larger than what you have now. And then you encounter sticker shock. You might find a Bink 32-inch monitor, 1200 bucks, or a ViewSonic 32-inch monitor, 750 a Samsung 32-inch monitor, $320. And of course, if you need two monitors, the price is doubled. But you know that most televisions have HDMI inputs, so why not use a television as your monitor? You'll find an Acer 32-inch television, $219. A ViewSonic 32-inch television, $210. Vizio 31.5-inch television, $170. The choice might seem obvious, but is it? We can do many things that perhaps we shouldn't. Just because you can climb up onto the roof and jump off doesn't mean you should. I think my mother had a saying about things like that. But using a television as a computer monitor doesn't seem to be in quite that category. After all, it won't kill you. But televisions and computer monitors differ quite a bit. Compared to computer monitors, televisions are large. A 32-inch television is small. A 32-inch computer monitor is huge. Now, this means you can get a larger screen by choosing a television, but your eyes may not thank you. Television sets are generally not viewed from 19 inches. That's a common viewing distance for computer screens. So televisions are intended to be watched from across the room. What's viewed on a television screen is substantially different from what you'll view on a computer monitor also. You might watch a DVD on a computer screen or on a television screen, but the computer monitor will be used more often for text and photographs. The refresh rate on televisions is slower, and the display latency, particularly the display latency, can make an image seem a little blurry. And that's a problem that's exacerbated by close viewing. 
Televisions with organic light-emitting diode displays are better in that regard. So, in general, using a television as a computer monitor, eh, probably not a good idea. Perhaps you use an application such as Speccy, SpeedFan, Hardware Info, or any of several other applications that keep an eye on what's going on inside the computer. If so, you may have wondered why each core in the central processing unit reports a different temperature and why the readings vary so much. After all, the computer is just sitting there. The temperature in the room isn't changing. and There aren't any external factors that would affect the temperature inside the computer. Yet the temperature of the CPUs may vary from 45 degrees centigrade to 80 degrees centigrade. That's quite a change. Most technical measurements are made using the metric system. So for those of us in the few remaining countries on the planet that still use the old imperial system, that would be a range from 113 degrees to 176 degrees Fahrenheit. Why? Well, the computer might look like it's just sitting there, but it's always doing something. It's watching for you to move the mouse or type on the keyboard, or maybe it's waiting for voice input from you. It could be backing up files to a cloud-based system. It's processing and sending data to the screen all the time. When the computer is largely idle, the CPU temperatures will be lower. Ask the computer to render a video, though, and the CPU temperature will rise dramatically. Consider what happens to you at the gym. You walk in, you're cool, you're comfortable. Half an hour later, you'll be hot and sweating profusely. That's essentially what's happening inside the computer. Every time you ask the CPU to do something more, it gets a little bit hotter. But why do the individual cores vary so much? They're all part of the same physical CPU, and the CPU is probably not much larger than a commemorative postage stamp. Temperatures are generally close. But the cores do vary depending on how much work is being assigned to each of them. You'll see a screenshot that shows several different monitoring applications on this week's TechBiter Worldwide. The various monitoring applications provide different kinds of information. Speccy monitors all of the computer's subsystems. I use it once a week to see if there's anything significantly out of line. It shows temperatures for the CPU cores, but no graphs. To see performance over time, I can run SpeedFan. It does have a graphing option that shows changes over time. Hardware Info offers some additional information, such as the distance to TJ Maxx. Don't confuse that with the clothing store TJ Maxx. The TJ Maxx value is the temperature at which the CPU will automatically initiate throttling to slow itself down and avoid overheating. Core Zero, in the screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website, is reporting a temperature of 53 degrees centigrade and a distance to TJ Maxx of 47 degrees centigrade. So the core would need to reach a temperature of 100 degrees centigrade before throttling would occur. And you might remember from high school chemistry or physics that 100 degrees centigrade is 212 degrees Fahrenheit, also the boiling point of water at sea level. Temperatures generally don't become a problem unless the user is overclocking the CPU by running it at a higher speed than it was designed for, or if the computer's fans or heat vents are blocked. 
There's no need to be concerned with temperature fluctuations in spare parts. To find out what's new this week, visit the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll find these articles. If you're considering a Windows S mode computer, be sure that you understand the limitations. And if you have one of these computers, there is a way to remove the restrictions if you find them too limiting. Buying Apple products you see on Instagram might be dangerous. Beware fakes and counterfeit devices. And 20 years ago, typefaces on websites were limited to about half a dozen faces that were present on all computers. But Bitstream was trying to change that. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.